If you have your Bible, uh, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible and you wish you had, you, you're welcome to run right out there and grab one off the table. Uh, you will need it. Uh, don't, don't, after we finish reading the passage, don't close it and put it away. You're, you're going to need it again. Um, as we uh, consider uh, this, this doctrine, this idea of sola scriptura, as we start this morning this five-week series on the five choose-your-term battle cries of the Reformation, uh, bumper stickers of the Reformation, uh, that term comes from, you know, if, if they had had cars and could print bumper stickers, these are the things they would have had on the back of their cars. You know, you can imagine horse-drawn buggies, carriages with bumper stickers on the back. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia. Um, so we're starting this morning this, this five-week uh, series. Uh, we'll look this morning... At 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, uh, as you know, it's our practice to stand when we read God's Word together, so let me ask that you do that now. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, as the one who has inspired these words, even as these words tell us, who has preserved these words, and who is now at work in them and by them and through them, we pray that you would conform us more and more to the image of Christ, that we would grow in our love for, our knowledge of, our commitment to the very Word of God, for it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. On April 17, 1521, uh, Martin Luther was taken before the Diet of Worms. It's Worms, not Worms. He wasn't eating worms. It's, it's, a, it's a meeting. It's a council of sorts. It wasn't much of a meeting. They only had two questions for him. The first question was, Martin Luther, are these your writings? And in front of him was a collection of Luther's works. Yes, they are. The second question, do you recant? And at that, Luther sat, thought, wondered, kind of drooped his head, dropped his shoulders, and mumbled something nobody really heard or understood. And they said, say that again? And he asked, could I have... 24 hours. And so on April 18th, 1521, Luther's back before the Diet of Firms. And he uttered those words that you and I know, have heard, have become so famous, familiar, and are so frequently quoted. Your serene emperor and you illustrious princes and gracious lords, you demand a clear and direct answer. Here it is, plain and unvarnished. I cannot 
and I will not recant. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And with that, Luther was condemned. But now we have two questions for Luther. Now it's our turn. Let's drag Luther before us and say, all right, Martin, we've got two questions for you. Number one, where is here? If here I stand, where is here? What are you standing on? Question two. Question one's the answer's obvious, right? He's not standing on his books, which are laid out before him. He's not standing on the things he's written. He's standing on God's Word. He's standing on Scripture. My conscience, he says, is bound by the Word of God. Unless I'm convinced, you know, they didn't have iPhones. You you watch a post-game press conference and there's a thousand phones held up in front of coaches and players. Everybody's recording everything all the time. I get nervous in public when I see people looking at their phone and they're looking at it in an awkward sort of way. It's like, hold it down so I know you're not recording me. It's that kind of world we live in. They didn't have that in Luther's day. The, The quote from Luther, it's close. Nobody's a thousand percent sure exactly what he said and how he said it. They all include, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. My conscience is bound by the Word of God, he says. Unless I'm convinced by Scripture or by clear reason, he said. That's where he stands. He stands on the Bible. We drag Luther in. Luther, question number one, where is here? If you're going to stand, if you're saying here I stand, where's here? He's going to say, well, it's the Bible. My conscience, my writing, everything I believe, what I know, what I hold to, what I'm willing to endure, it's all grounded in God's Word. Okay, fine. Second question. Is that a good place to stand? Is that really where you want to be? Is that, a, is, that, is that really the place you're willing to stake everything on? Or to ans- ask it maybe in a way that, that gives away the very obvious answer. Um, what makes the Bible a good place to stand? That's that's what Luther's dealing with. And in many ways, the answer, although we could have turned to a thousand other passages, we could have used any number of places in the Bible. We choose instead 2 Timothy 3. because, Because Paul tells us right here in this passage, yes, absolutely, this is a good, safe, right place to stand. How do we know? What makes... Scripture, what makes the Bible a good place for Luther to stand? Well, first of all, Scripture alone is inspired by God. You know, 
I guess there are probably three ways to view the Bible. There are those people out there who think it's just a book. I mean, it's written by a whole bunch of people. So, I mean, it's got to be full of all kinds of mistakes. I mean, if, if I, you have a bulletin in your hand written by one guy predominantly in the span of four days. And it has at least two mistakes. In, no, three mistakes. And I've counted three mistakes in the worship guide you hold in your hand that I wrote last week alone. Imagine a book written by dozens of people over thousands of years. Put your bulletins down. Quit looking for the mistakes. Stop it. I'll tell you where they are later. But they've got to be, it's got to be, it's, it's just written by a whole bunch of people. Paul said he wrote this letter. Peter says he wrote his letter. Luke says he's writing his gospel. If that many people, you put that many people together in one book and they collect their writings, it's riddled with mistakes. That's one way to view the Bible. It's just another book written by mere humans with all kinds of problems and mistakes in it. Just like any other writing. Another way would be to, to say that it, okay, it's not God's Word, but it contains God's Word. Like, some places God speaks, and some places, well, that's just Paul. Some places, um, yeah, this is the part God said, and we should listen to it. Probably things like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Probably things like God is love. Okay, we'll buy that one. Okay, God wrote that one. But these things that sound chauvinistic and like belittling to women and particular about, about who can have what office in the church and sexual orientation, that's just... Paul being a chauvinist. That's just Paul being Paul. That's just Paul writing in the first century. It, it contains God's Word, but it isn't God's Word. What does Paul think about the Bible? Look at verse 15. Paul says, Timothy, you have been raised knowing the sacred writings. That, that's, not, um, that, that's not writings like anybody else wrote. These are, these are writings that are different from all the rest. These are writings that are, that are sacred. They're holy. They're, sa- they're set apart from all the rest. They're different from all the others. He's been raised in a home where, and, and you can tell in the context, you can also tell from from the culture around him, that phrase, Paul's referring to the Old Testament. That's all that there was when Timothy was a child. As Timothy's growing up in his house and his mom and his grandmom are teaching him the Bible, they're, they're reading uh, the Bible to him every night, they're reading the Old Testament to him, they're teaching him, he's become acquainted and he has learned the sacred writings. These aren't Paul's admitting, Paul's recognizing that, that those writings are different from, say, Goodnight Moon. 
or where the wild things are. They're different from other bedtime stories. They're, they're not normal books that we read at home to our children when our children are growing up. Yes, we read those, but then he's also familiar, he's acquainted with, he's learned, he knows the sacred writings. That's a, that's a, it's a different class. The Old Testament, in Paul's mind, is in a different class from any other things you might read to your children. It's not the same class as, as ABCs and 2 plus 2. Things we teach our children. But notice, too, that Paul then turns around in verse 16 and uses a different word. He calls them sacred writings in verse 15. And then in verse 16, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. The sacred writings and Scripture are the same, but not exactly the same. See, when Timothy was a child, all they had was the Old Testament. By now, as Paul is writing this letter to Timothy... They actually have portions of the New Testament. And yet, even for that matter, part of the New Testament isn't complete yet. How do I know? Paul's writing some of it right now. Paul writes these words, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Timothy doesn't have that yet. It's still in Paul's hand. It just came out of his pen. It's on that paper. He just wrote it down. He's writing the Bible as he speaks. So, Scripture is, is a bigger group than all than the sacred writings. The sacred writings are a subset of all Scripture. But notice that both for the sacred writings and that which was yet to, be, to come, notice where they come from. It's, it's, it's Paul's pen. And they're Paul's words but they're not Paul's words. All Scripture is breathed out by God. We use the probably unfortunate term, all Scripture alone is inspired by God. That's probably an unfortunate term for several reasons. It's trying to capture, though, the notion that God's breath is in these, you realize that if you, if you can't breathe, you can't talk, right? You, you know that you need air to talk. And so in every word you speak, your breath is in that word. In every word of Scripture, God's breath is in that word. They're His words. They come from His mouth. Our term inspiration is trying to grab that spiro, the Latin for I breathe. South Carolina State motto, doom spiro spiro, while I breathe I hope. So we inspiration, okay, breathed in, but they're not really breathed in. It's not like there were words there that God somehow then breathed life into. The words came out of his mouth. He breathed them out. But I guess it would be unfortunate as well to say that the Bible was expired by God as though it had died or was somehow past its usefulness date. 
That's the idea behind our term inspired by God. Breathed out by God. We far too often use that word inspiration. You're the meaning in my life. You're the inspiration. The, the, the speech that motivates you, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I have a dream speech. John Kennedy's ask not what you can do for your country, but what, I mean, that's not what your country can do for you, but what your, you can do for your country speech. Dabo Sweeney's BYOG speech, bring your own guts. I wanted to put on a helmet. That's not what, it's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying that these, are, these words are motivating, they're inspiring, that, that, that they were already here or that Paul wrote them and then held them up for God to breathe on them and that somehow gave them. He's saying these words that I'm writing, God's writing through me. God's word alone is inspired. The Scripture alone is inspired by God. We, we see this other places. Let me just show you. As I told you, you don't want to close your Bibles and put them away. Turn to 2 Peter. To 2 Peter. Chapter 1. And let me just show you. Peter, um, Peter echoes Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21... I'll just read the one verse, although the context is a couple of times. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Or to see it how Paul says it another way, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians 2, verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the Word of God, there's, there's that phrase alone, you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you Believers. So Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, Luther, if you're going to stand on the Bible, is this really a good place to stand? Or what makes the Bible a worthy place to stand? Well, part of the answer is, I'm sure, surely Luther would say to us, well, 2 Timothy 3. Scripture alone is inspired by God. Scripture alone is breathed out by God. That, that alone, by the way, makes it a worthy place to stand. I mean, that, that should be all we need. If God is perfect, if God is holy, if God is Himself sinless, then everything He says must be true cannot be misleading, and he cannot make mistakes. Luther would point to his Bible and go, this is, this is from God's own lips, 
that means everything in it is right and true. Everything in it is worthy of my hope and trust. Everything in it is worthy to believe because God, who is holy, can't have messed up when He wrote this. Scripture alone is inspired by God. The the book you're holding in your hand or looking at on your iDevice is completely without error and is true and right in all that it says. Scripture alone is inspired by God, but also Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3 that Scripture alone is authoritative and sufficient for salvation. Look at verse 15. Timothy had learned from childhood, from his earliest days, the sacred writings the Old Testament, what value did they have in Timothy's life? And for that matter, implied in what Paul, what Paul writes in verse 15, what value are the sacred writings for everyone? Did you notice how he finished that sentence? You've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We read the Old Testament and think that somewhere at that blank piece of paper between Malachi and Matthew, God changed. We turn from Malachi to Matthew and and in our minds, God is finally a different person. Now He's gracious. Now He's merciful. Now He's kind. Now He's loving. The Old Testament, there's all this oppressive law stuff. God was demanding and difficult. That's what we do in our heads. Paul says, hey, Timothy, the Old Testament was able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. We go, but wait, Jesus doesn't show up until the New Testament. How could he possibly be in the Old? Part of what Paul's saying is the Old Testament points us to Christ. The Old Testament says there's coming a perfect promised Messiah who will live and die and rise again for you so that you and I might find forgiveness in Him. The Old Testament anticipates Christ. The Old Old Testament anticipates the coming of Christ Jesus. And Paul says, look, Timothy, you knew even from childhood the sacred writings, the Old Testament, and they were able to make you wise for salvation. If the Old Testament is good enough to point us to Christ, how much more the new, which I had an Old Testament professor call the appendix, He so clearly saw the gospel in the Old Testament that the hymn, the New Testament was, that's the appendix. Paul says, the, the Old Testament is about Jesus. But he also makes this observation. All Timothy needed to know Christ 
was the Bible. You know, there's a, a temptation, I think, for us to figure out new, fancy, spectacular ways to get unbelievers saved. We look for the flash and pizzazz because let's face it, let's admit it, even on a, as we record our sermons, this is going to go down for anyone to hear. What we do here, this, preaching God's Word, is not all that flashy. In fact, I discovered just this past week that Kristen Bell is now uh, a spokesperson for Enterprise Car Rental and Enterprise Car Sales. You know why? They make her feel like a princess. She's the voice of Anna in Frozen. We look for... Oh, Deion, uh, Deion Sanders got converted quick. Let's get him in our church. Let's give him a microphone. Let's give him an opportunity to speak. Quick, let's shoot off fireworks. Let's look for some fancy new way we can, we can get people in here. Let's, let's get some famous athlete to speak. Or um, bring in somebody who actually died, who actually went to heaven, who actually saw it, but then was revived. Let's get that person because that person's an expert. Let's get, we, what we need is we need something special. We need flash. We need pizzazz. We need something spectacular if we were going to get people to trust in Christ. Paul says, I'll tell you what you need. I tell you what you need more than anything at all. The Bible. All you need is the Bible. And for Timothy, it was the Old Testament was sufficient to make him wise for salvation in Christ. Turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Let me remind you of something we saw a couple of years ago in our series through the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 16, there is... Uh, Jesus tells the story, a parable of sorts, of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, the rich man has his... What, this is not the Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead on the third day. This isn't Mary and Martha's brother. It's a different person, different Lazarus. The rich man has his wealth and his big, huge, massive house, and Lazarus is a beggar uh, at his gate. Uh, they both die. The rich man ends up in Hades. Lazarus is in heaven uh, at Abraham's side. And there's discussion, conversation between... Um, the rich man and Abraham, hey, can I have some water? It's pretty hot down here. Uh, and when, when that's not possible, um, verse 27. Uh, he said that I, this is the rich man speaking. Uh, and he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, but, no, but you don't understand. If somebody came back, okay, I know they have the Bible, but if somebody came back from the dead and warned them about hell, then they would believe. That, that's, his, that's his argument, verse 30. And he said, no, Father Abraham, 
But if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And notice Abraham's response. And, and, and again, this is, these are Jesus' words. Jesus is telling the story. So this is Jesus' view as well. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, a dead guy walking out of the tomb isn't going to do them any good. Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Notice Jesus' view is the Bible is sufficient and authoritative for our salvation. Paul goes on in verse 16 and 17 describing Scripture. It's breathed out by God, but notice its usefulness. Notice what it's good for. All Scripture is breathed out by God, verse 16, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The Bible is useful, necessary, to teach us, to point us to Christ, to, to grow us in our knowledge of and love for Christ and for His church. For pointing out weakness and sin and failure and steering us towards Christ, towards righteous living. The larger context of this chapter, by the way, is... Um, is a warning. There will be people who are self-serving, self-loving, self-motivated, self-aggrandizing people who will come along and mishandle and mistreat and um, God's Word and they will oppose God's teachers and His people. And it's in light of that context that Paul says, therefore you, Timothy, Continue in what you have learned. He warns Timothy there'll be false teachers. There'll be those who want to oppose Christ and His church. Who want to oppose you. So Timothy, what are you going to do? What, what tool are you going to have for your own protection, but also for your people? Timothy's pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Ephesus. So what's he going to use? What's his, what instruments, what tools is he going to use? Well, that's, that's in that context that Paul says, use Scripture. It's, it's useful for teaching. It's useful for instructing us in God's will. In fact, for that matter, it's the only thing that will do that. That's why we have a Bible at all. General revelation, creation, around us tells us God exists, but it doesn't tell us anything about our sin or about Christ or about how to be saved. We need a special revelation. And so here we have God's Word teaching us about God and Christ and His will for our salvation. It steers us. It points us towards... It points out our errors. It reproves us. But then it also corrects us and trains us in righteousness. If our goal is to know and obey God's will, then His Word is the perfect place 
for training in that arena. Scripture alone is authoritative and sufficient for our salvation. We celebrate the 500th anniversary of what counts as the start of the Protestant Reformation. As if, as if, you, as if you could start, you know, pin that on one event. Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg. That was not a particular... I, I in my head, I imagine this pristine, large, solid wooden door... And this, you know, with every hammer beat, boom, the whole town kind of, what's that? It, it, it wasn't a particularly revolutionary thing. I mean, he, it, it was a bulletin board. It was, it was where you made public announcements. It was, you know, when I was in college, there were kiosks all around campus, and that was where you publicized things. And now you just post it to your Facebook page, and there's your announcement. There's your, there's your publication I, you know, I, he probably had to move a piece of paper, you know, one of those, you know, for sale, mint condition, 1510 horse cart. You know, he had to move that out of the way, you know, the thing with the pull-off, call this number if you want to buy this. He had to move that out of the way to nail his 95 theses to that door. I, I don't know what else was on that door. And he's challenging the church. He's challenging the Pope. He's, he's challenging the, the leaders and, and teachers of tradition and the church on things like the sale of indulgences. I mean, on what basis is, is he going to say, well, I don't think the sale of indulgences, Mr. Tetzel, is right. He's challenging on, on the teaching of the Lord's Supper. On what basis would he challenge the church's teaching on faith and salvation? On what basis would he challenge the church's teaching on purgatory? These 95 points of contention, these articles of dispute with the church, on what basis would he, would he challenge those teachings? Well, on the basis of Scripture alone. Scripture alone is inspired by God. Scripture alone is authoritative and sufficient for our salvation. Now don't hear me saying that all traditions and all church councils are bad or should be ignored. For that matter, we use the Apostles' Creed. We use the Nicene Creed. We've used the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechisms. We used even the Scots Confession Today, we're not saying throw out all creeds, all councils. We're not saying that at all. We're not saying all tradition and history is bad. What we're saying, what Scripture is saying, what Martin Luther was saying, is that those things are subject to God's Word. And what had happened was in their day, the Bible, tradition, the teaching of the church, the Pope himself, all had equal footing. They were all on the same level. And Luther said, 
The Bible claims ultimate authority. The Bible rules and reigns over tradition, rules and reigns over councils, rules and reigns over our hearts, rules and reigns over the Pope and over the church and over whatever we teach. And Paul echoes that when he says, Oh, that more of you were Bereans. Paul. Paul, you know, the one that wrote like half or more of the entire New Testament. One of the greatest missionaries and church planners the world has ever known had a church congregation that when he finished preaching, and I don't know how they did this because not everybody had a copy of the Bible in their hands, right? They they weren't holding Bibles like you are. It's so much easier for us and we failed to do it. They then go, all right, hang on, Paul, before we go home, let's make sure what you said is right. Even Paul, who praised them for that, said, I'm subject to God's Word. The Bible teaches sola scriptura. The Bible teaches Scripture alone is inspired by God, is authoritative and sufficient for salvation, and is therefore our only rule of faith in life. Let me make two short, brief applications for us. First, a corporate application. The ministries and aims of Grace Covenant Church will be word-based, word-centered. We will subject ourselves to God's Word. It will guide and direct the ministries and aims and visions and goals and hopes and dreams of Grace Covenant Church. We won't look for the latest fads or gimmicks or you know, kind of lick our finger and stick it up in the air and figure out which way the wind is blowing and go that way. We will be committed to Word-based ministry. Second application... If you were holding a book, if you were given a book written by three of the leading scientists and doctors in the world and and told, in this book is the cure for cancer, would you read it? Surely we would. Surely we'd read that book. How much more that we've been given a book that says this comes not from the leading scientists and medical doctors of our day. It actually comes from the very breath of God Himself. A cancer book would never collect dust. We'd read it, we'd pass it around, we'd give it to friends. Our Bibles sit on the shelf. We say we believe in sola scriptura, that that scripture alone is inspired by God and authoritative and sufficient for our salvation, and then we live like that's a bunch of bunk. Oh, that we would hide His word in our hearts, that we would not sin against Him. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, you have stooped to us. You've condescended to us that we might hold in our hands Your very Word in language we can read and understand, which Calvin describes the way an adult prattles goo-goo-ga-ga's at two-year-olds, one-year-olds, six-month-olds. You've stooped to us. You've condescended to us in our language. Father, would You grow in us a hunger and a thirst for Your Word that cannot be quenched? Would You grow in us a love for Your Word that spills out into wholehearted commitment to know it, to bleed it, to think it, to speak it, to bring it to bear in every conversation, in every joy and trial of life, Father, we pray that we would hide Your Word in our hearts. That we wouldn't sin against You. And would You guard and guide the ministries of Grace Covenant Church not to follow the latest fads, the latest gimmicks, the latest trends, the latest Barna poles, but to ground the ministry of our congregation in the very Word of God, that it would be our only rule of faith and practice. Through Christ we ask it. Amen.